Welcome to Sounds Erotic, the voices of erotica. Allow me to tell you a little about the show. Sounds Erotic is a weekly podcast that introduces you to the most unique, interesting, and successful people in erotica. We will explore topics that you might never have considered and introduce you to forms of erotica that pique more than just your interest. Leading you on this journey will be me. Who am I? My name is Alex Anders, and as an erotica author, I have published more than 40 titles. My stories have been translated into German, Spanish, French, and you can find a lot of them as audiobooks narrated by yours truly. I have always been drawn to all forms of sex, so I have written stories for both men and women, whether you are straight, gay, or bi. All of my stories can be found at alexandersbooks.com, and I look forward to you checking it out. But that's enough about me. More importantly, I am very pleased to have as my guest today, Tina Engler Keen, also known as best-selling author Jade Black. Before the Kindle or the Nook, Tina became one of the first e-book erotica publishers in the world, forming Allura's Cave, literally the first name in Romantica. Welcome, Tina. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad you can join us today. And before I ask any of the big questions, I need to ask the most important one, which is, what do you like most about sex? Coming. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. That, I'm going to change that answer. Yeah. Uh, I like everything leading up to it. I find orgasms themselves anticlimactic. So I like sort of everything leading up to that moment. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Great answer. So where are you from? Ohio. And what did your parents do growing up? My dad was a janitor and my mom was an executive. So she was always like the quote breadwinner. That's quite a discrepancy. How did your parents get together? I don't know. Honestly, never, <laughs> never asked. <laughs> oh, I think they met through mutual friends. And I wasn't raised with gender roles, really, in the house. It was like my dad always cooked and cleaned. And my mom was always the moneymaker, I guess you could say. But I never thought anything about it. I didn't think my father was less of a man or my mom had a secret dick I didn't know about. You know, it was just, it was what it was. So I was not ever raised with any kind of gender role expectations, I guess you could say. Looking back on it, do you see anywhere where it could have caused conflict between your parents that your mother was so successful and your father was more work a day? No. They have a great marriage. They still have a great marriage. He was the type that needed to take care of someone, and she was the type that needed to be taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked out really well for them. I mean, not to say they don't fight. They remind me of the Barones, actually, off of uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, Marie and Frank. <laughs> but they have a great relationship. I mean, at the end of the day, they're each other's rock. Well, was it a reading household growing up? Um... My mom was real into thrillers, Stephen King, that kind of thing. My dad, eh, not so much. He would read, like if my mom said, oh, I know you'll like this, honey, then he would read it. Other than that, you know, it wasn't something he sought out. He mostly liked watching sports. For me, yeah, I read a lot growing up. I think probably the book I read that kind of was like the coming of age and realizing that there's little butterflies that get in your belly was probably V.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic. And that kind of started my, oh my, you know, <laughs> the love of the taboo or whatever, I guess you could say. 
That's so funny that you'd mentioned that book. I had no clue there was taboo stuff in it because when I was growing up, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times in the podcast, that I grew up uh, with a form of dyslexia. So I wasn't a big reader, but my mother always tried to encourage me to read. And one of the things she did to me was she read me at night Flowers from the Attic because that was the book that she was reading. And I don't remember there being any risque stuff in her version of the story. Did she leave out that they were brother and sister? <laughs> well, they were brother and sister, but was there romantic things going on between them? Oh, absolutely. So what was it about Flowers in the Attic that really appealed to you? I guess it was the extreme circumstances and, you know, it was the love and then kind of the combination of that love between the brother and the sister. They really didn't have anybody but each other. So I think I'd have to say that that reflects on a lot of my writing is the extreme circumstances. I just find it a lot hotter for a man and a woman to come together, no pun intended, or pun intended, however you want to look at it, under two enemies that come together, or there's got to be that conflict. And if there's not, it's kind of a little dull to me. I don't like what we call in the romance industry the big misunderstanding, where everything could have been cleared up with one conversation. Right. It doesn't happen until the last page, you know? Right. I'm not a fan of that. I'm talking about, like, people raised to be mortal enemies or whatever, and they end up in an extreme situation and have to come together or what have you. Not always that in my books, but... That's pretty much what I go for when I'm not writing erotic comedies. For erotic comedies, it's a little bit different, but there you go. How old were you when you read Flowers? Seventh grade. About 12? Sounds right. 12, 13, yeah. What type of guys were you interested in when you were, I guess, maybe 13, when you discovered the differences between boys and girls? Well, I went to a very conservative private Christian school. The guys there didn't really interest me. I guess I was more interested in the bad boys that went to public school. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, ooh, they go to public school. There was just all kinds of rumors that would fly around my very conservative Christian school about guys at public schools and, you know, kind of that forbidden fruit and, wow, so enticing kind of thing. What event in your life do you think most influenced your writing? That is tough. I think probably the single biggest thing that affected my writing was the need for escapism from my current reality. At least that's why I started writing. You know, it was like I had busted my ass getting through college and having a baby at the same time being a single mom. And after I graduated, the best job I could find was being a reservation agent at Continental Airlines, which no longer exists. But... It was very depressing, put it like that. I had gotten accepted on a full scholarship into a Ph.D. program at Florida State, but I had a pregnancy that just wasn't planned. You know, it was like we used condom and the pill. She just really wanted to be born. (laughs) (laughs) And he left me when I chose not to have an abortion. And so I was alone with two kids, and I decided that, It would be too much to go away from where my family was with absolutely no help and continue on in this Ph.D. program by myself. So I chose to get a job, and the best job I could get was as a reservation agent. And it was very depressing. I felt like I had worked my ass off for absolutely nothing. So I started reading first, you know, a lot. And then I started writing because I think most writers start writing, reading other writers and thinking, ah, I would have done it this way or that way. And 
rather than write the author and say, you should have done it this way or that way, I just decided I would do it this way or that way. (laughs) And so there it sort of began. And I just kind of wrote, you know, in between taking care of my kids and working and that sort of thing. And then I started sending off my manuscripts to the New York houses. And I got rejection after rejection after rejection, saying women didn't want to read about sex, not graphic sex like that, tone it down and resubmit, blah, blah, blah. So I was faced with the choice of either toning it down and, you know, to play the game or creating a new game with my own rules, and I chose the latter. So I used basically the last couple hundred dollars I had left on a credit card and got ebook software as much as it existed at the time and started from there. Published my first novel and then got more writers as word spread and there you go. How old were you when you wrote that first book? 25. And what was the story about? It was about a modern day earth woman who gets kidnapped by an alien where you experience everything with her, like everything comes as a surprise. And it's basically a culture that's very sexual and has all these things that an earth woman wouldn't be used to and all these rules that an earth woman wouldn't be used to. And it's a campy, funny, and sexy and all that at the same time. So I guess you could call it like sci-fi, only I'm not real big on the sci You know, it's like I put enough in there to make it like, oh, semi-plausible, but I'm more of a wallpaper sci-fi writer. I don't, you know, enjoy reading up on all the technology of how this could happen, and I really don't know and don't care. That's the great part about writing sci-fi is you can make everything up. (laughs) So it's actually probably the purest form of writing, if you ask me. I know it's my favorite type to read, watch TV or watch movies. I consider sci-fi writers to be the most creative because they have to create entire worlds. Yeah, everything is done by you. There's really no rules. So I do like it. It's like it can be hard, but it's the purest form of writing, in my opinion. What was the inspiration for that book? It's called The Empress's New Clothes, and basically she doesn't really hardly have any clothes when she gets to this (laughs) planet. I think, honestly... The hero is like the ultimate alpha male. And at the time I wrote this, I had just had my boyfriend leave me because I wouldn't have an abortion. And my other daughter's father didn't do anything to take care of her. And I don't know, I guess you could say that Zor, he was everything I wanted in a man. You know, like sometimes I didn't want to be the one responsible for everything. Kind of like how my mom and dad have where, you know, she can go home and just relax with him. And he gives her a big hug and she feels like everything's going to be all right. So I guess that's pretty much where my mindset was at the time. It's probably my mindset for every book I've written since, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a novel or is this a short story, a novella? No, that's a full-length novel. It's actually quite long. And is this the book that became your first publishing for Alora's Cave? Correct. So you're about to publish your first book through ebook. How did you come up with the name Jade Black? Honestly, my youngest daughter's name is Jade, but it's spelled J-A-D-E. And at the time, there was pretty much AOL, AOL, and AOL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was no J-A-D-E Black. 
available, so I tried spelling it J-A-I-D Black, and it worked. You know, I was able to get that email. I haven't had it in years, so God knows who has it now, but (laughs) basically that's how I came up with the spelling for Jade, was just because J-A-D-E wasn't available and black because my oldest daughter is half black. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed like a, a way to go to incorporate both of my kids. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, my oldest daughter is half black. My youngest daughter is half Jewish. And there you go. It's the you fucking in at our dinner table. I like it (laughs) yeah I don't think anything of it it doesn't bother me I don't care if a man has a problem with it I automatically am like ew bye see ya you know I mean if anybody even raises eyebrows at it it's like okay you're nobody I want to even begin to mess with so adios you know because we have like really everything in our family minus I'd say Asian would be the only race not accounted for in our family so (laughs) Pretty much everything else we got. So you've decided to publish your first book. Where did you first publish it? Allure's Cave Publishing, my my company that I started. I had sent it out, you know, the manuscript to all of the publishing houses that would take unsolicited manuscripts. And it was just the same thing everywhere. Tone it down, tone it down. You know, it's great writing, great concept, but women don't want to read graphic sex like that, blah, blah. And I was faced with the choice and also faced with the idea that either A, they were wrong, or B, I was a sexual deviant. So I figured, well, if I want to read it, and I get very irritated in these romance novels when all of a sudden the bedroom door just shuts and, you know, or they're kissing and then the next thing you know, she's, ah, and she's somehow found her womanhood. You know, it's like, how, where, why, what (laughs) what did I miss? But I couldn't be the only one that wanted the detail. Sex is such an important part of a relationship. You know, let's face it, if you're not happy sexually, that's pretty much where marriages end or cheating begins or... Or an emotional disconnection happens between the two partners. There you go. Yeah. What year was this and what options did you have to distribute at that time? Uh, The year was 2000 and the distribution options were practically non-existent. Well, email, that was it. (laughs) Really? PayPal didn't even have a shopping cart where you could put more than one item in at a time. So basically what I did was when I got orders in, I would just fill them via email. I would attach an upload, and I had to do that, and especially as word caught on, which it did, like, right away, I turned to profit the very first year. My very first year, I probably made 40 grand, Mm. I'd say, and that was only with a handful of authors, and I was pretty much the most popular one from the get-go, and over time... I've written less and less and have been more concentrated on the creative aspects of furthering my company and furthering the careers of my authors. So I've definitely got writers that, you know, outsell me now. It still amazes me, though, how much I make in royalties from my backlist. And it's one of those things that just kind of took off. I remember when I got my very first sale and I thought, oh, my God, (laughs) you know, one book. How did you get that sale? How did people find out about your books? 
Amazon. I just went and posted stuff all over Amazon. I think basically what I had going for me at the time was there was no competition. Uh, It simply didn't exist. The genre didn't exist. So I created something that women wanted and had no other way of getting. Kind of like, I don't know being a drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) Only drug dealer in town. Exactly. There you go. So, you know, it wasn't something, there's no way in the world I could have competed or even got the attention of anybody if all I was selling was romance. But I was selling something women wanted that they couldn't get elsewhere. So as much as people at the time didn't want to read on their computers, they would just so that they could have the book and read the kind of material that they wanted to read. And I held that market for a good three, four years before there was competition. And by then, you know, I'd kind of set the standard. So even when people would go venture out to other places, they always came back home. I think that is, of any really extremely successful entrepreneur, I think you have to have an original idea and you have to have a monopoly on it for enough time to gain momentum. Because by the time New York caught on to the fact that okay, this girl really is something to be reckoned with. She might be onto something here. I already had my secure niche. So them stealing my authors, which they did on a constant basis back then before we could compete with them financially, you know, they started stealing them left and right. But by then I had already had my secure footing and we were known for producing new authors and finding quality writers. So it didn't affect our sales at all. As they took, we just kept replacing. And, you know, with New York, they could only put out so many books a month or what have you. So they could only take so many, and we could put out as many as we wanted. And now we're to the point where the New York authors come to us because we have people that make serious cash, six figures a month. There's writers that really make a killing that don't have to put up with all the bullshit of New York with all these high reserves that they put. You know, we don't offer advances, but a lot of writers that have written for New York find that they like that. They don't have that mental, okay, I got to earn this back and then I'm not going to see a cent for a year, you know, while I earn my advance back and blah, blah, blah. And we pay every month and we pay, you know, really high royalties and we treat our people really wonderful, you're always going to have people that cause drama or, you know, accuse you of bullshit things. In the earlier days, I went and I would defend myself on the blogs and stuff, and I was like, it's just not worth it, you know, because no matter what you say, jealousy reigns and people are going to create stuff in their head or whatever. But most of our authors, the vast majority thereof, they're very happy with us, and we get emails from them all the time. So that's what I keep in mind, and I just tune out the negativity and live in a bubble from it. (laughs) (laughs) When did you decide that you were successful? I think probably when I became a millionaire. That was like, wow. They say that money changes people. It doesn't change the person with the money. It changes the way others treat you or react to you. Some people act like I'd won the lottery instead of busted my ass and a lot of resentment and jealousy, even in my own extended family. But you find out who your friends are, and I can count them on three fingers. I mean, I even lost a friend that had been my friend since I was like 10. It was like, it was okay when 
when she was the one that came from the family with, they were all doctors and extremely wealthy, and my mom was an executive, but a woman, so not paid probably what she should have been paid, and my dad was this janitor, and it was okay when I was pity-worthy, but when I was making more, it was like she couldn't deal with it. And that was probably the most painful loss I've had, personally speaking, because of my profession. Do you regret any part of your success? No. I wouldn't change a thing. I busted my ass for everything I've got. You know, I was, at the time when I was working at Continental, I was also receiving food stamps and, you know, a government check because, obviously, you know, a reservation agent, I'm not making enough money to care for my kids. I received welfare for eight years, not a bit ashamed of it, and I paid back. Basically, every month I pay more in taxes than I collected the entire eight years I was on it. So that's a sore subject for me. I cannot stand people that talk like they know what they're talking about when it comes to welfare. It's not a handout. It's there for a reason. And, you know, the ones they show on the TV, they're so not representative of the women that I met when I was receiving government benefits. So... I just think it's all like a great diversion of the government, really, to scapegoat poor women and children in order to divert attention away from everything that they give to these mega corporations and all that sort of thing. But that's my take on it. How long did it take you to become successful from the release of your first book? Well, it depends on your definition of success. When you're living it, you don't really feel any different. It becomes easier to live because you start making money, but you don't feel different. I think probably the very first public signing I ever did, that kind of made it seem more real. When people, you know, were clamoring for my autograph and lined up for it and so excited to take a picture with me. I remember my aunt was with me at Actually, this was at the very first book signing I ever did. And she's like sitting there looking at me like, why the fuck do you want her autograph? (laughs) She's my fucking niece. (laughs) She's nobody. (laughs) So, yeah, that kind of brought it home. It was like, wow, these people really like me, you know, or like what I provide for them. I think that tells you more than money, really, is when you're out with the public. And when did that occur? How long after your first book? It was a good amount of time. I'd had several books out by then. I know in terms of with my writing, all of my characters or the main characters in the story, they all desire acceptance. So all of my stories are about people finding someone else that loves them for exactly the way they are and wants to have sex with them for exactly the way they are. And that's my characteristic that I have a through line with. Do you have something like that in all of your stories that you think people gravitate towards? Well, definitely. My story that just came out, it's a novella and an anthology called Something Wicked This Way Comes, Volume 2. My story in it is a contemporary romantic comedy, and it's called Fat Man and Robin. And Robin is a plus-size girl, and the fat man is this jock guy, Jake. You know, he's a quarterback for, I called him the New York Bloods and you know, all this kind of thing, and he goes seeking psychiatric help for his sexual attraction toward, quote, chubby chicks. Mm -hmm. But I use it really to show that being underfed is not healthy and that a woman is supposed to be plush. What I find sexy in a woman is curves and hips and plush breasts 
sets and all that kind of thing. And actually studies show that when they hook men up to, you know, like the probes when they're doing scientific studies, Mm -hmm. they actually become more aroused by women who are fertile looking than by the ones that they think they find more arousing. So that tells you right there it's all just a social kind of brainwashing thing. If your innate attraction comes to fertility and and lushness, obviously that really is beauty. So I kind of do it from that angle and and I also write books to try to please like all of my readers. So sometimes I'll write Rubenesque stories like that one and sometimes, you know, I write for my African American readers. I'll write African American woman with a white man. That's a big fantasy for, you know, some that might have never been in a position where they could be with a white guy, but they kind of like the fantasy of it. So I try to write for all of my readers. You know, obviously I can't do that in every single book, but my readers seem to really follow me no matter what color my heroine is or what size she is or what size the reader is. Because also a reader can't help it if she's born looking underfed, but that's just her metabolism, you know? So it's not like I make judgments. I, I just try to make people feel accepted about themselves and that they're beautiful the way that they are. So I'm kind of with you on that one. Well, very with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> from your experience, from both your own writing and from Alora's Cave, what do you think is the most popular genre? BDSM, capture fantasies, and vampires. What are capture fantasies? Well, I'll use the Empress's New Clothes as an example. She's stolen from Earth, taken to a place where she can't escape. It's just kind of like everything is removed from the woman. There's no cooking and cleaning and working and kids and the man takes care of everything. It's kind of a fantasy that most women have. That's a good point. You mentioned BDSM. Do you write a lot of BDSM? You could basically call Capture Fantasy BDSM minus the mechanics. So I don't write BDSM with the whips and the chains and... You know, the leather, well, maybe a couple I've written. It's not my specialty. For that, I would defer to one of our top, I would say, actually, the world leading literary bondage queen would be Joey W. Hill. She's just phenomenal. But, you know, she lives this life, too. She's a sub in real life. I mean, they don't live it 24-7, but in the bedroom kind of thing. Right. You know, and so she really knows what she's doing, and she's so good at characterization that you understand the allure of the lifestyle and the psychology of it, you know, when you read her books. What's your thoughts on Fifty Shades of Grey, the number one book on Amazon right now? (laughs) Uh, A curse and a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) I think I wish the author nothing but the best. But I'm tired of the media falsely making a correlation between the success of Fifty Shades of Grey and the success of, like, say, Alora's Cave. That would be the curse part, you mm-hmm. know, because it doesn't have anything to do with our success. As a matter of fact, we haven't even seen anything that would indicate from our statistics or analysis that that book has in any way changed anything. The media is saying that it's bringing, you know, erotica into mainstream culture, well, no, it already was. It's bringing the media up to date is what it's doing. (laughs) Because we were already there. We've been there for years. But you would think that erotic romance didn't exist until this book came out. 
Right. You wouldn't think that there had been other New York Times bestsellers of erotic romance that weren't people making six figures a month writing erotic romance. So that's the curse part. The blessing part is it has given us a lot of media that you just can't buy. Right. And there's no such thing as bad publicity. There really isn't. Bloomberg TVs come to us, um, NBC interviews all over the place. So it gets our name out there for a kind of advertising you can't even buy. What has it been like being one of the figureheads for erotica? Well, it's overwhelming at times. Most of the time I don't think about it. When I'm put in a position where I have to, like, you know, in public or whatever, Mm -hmm. the tremendous outpouring of emotion and love that I'm given and that people want to talk to me and will stand in lines and wait and wait and wait does something to you it, it's like wow you know kind of makes you blink and realize you might have actually impacted people's lives i don't think that i'm such the figurehead for erotica as i am erotic romance there's a difference because with erotic romance there is still a romance i mean at heart it's still a love story with erotica there doesn't have to be a love story You know, it can just be people fucking to be blunt. But I would have to say that if you have actual love stories in your erotica, it's not erotica. It is erotic romance, technically speaking. But people are allowed to call, you know, whatever they feel comfortable with and whatever they feel their reader base is going to be comfortable with. That's why I started EC for Men because it doesn't use the romancy words and all that kind of thing. And it's kind of funny because when we were polling men and doing all this research to find out about what their fantasies were, they really weren't that much different from women in that they wanted the love and they wanted the romance. The sexual fantasies were slightly different. You know, they wanted to not have to work as much, you know, work so hard for. And you know what I mean? Because it's mm-hmm. like... The men are kind of in the position where they're the ones that are expected to ask the woman out. And, you know, they kind of want to chase for a while. So the sexual fantasy part is a little bit different. And that's why it warrants its own line, because it is aimed for men. But the romance part wasn't any different. And I found that surprising, actually, that even in their erotica, they wanted the happily ever after, I guess you could say. They didn't want just cold fucking is the happily ever after or the happy ending the difference between romantica and erotica or porn? Yes, there's always a happily ever after in erotic romance. And romantica is our trademark term for erotic romance, basically. With erotica, there doesn't have to be a happily ever after. There doesn't have to be any kind of emotion, actually. It can just you know, be pure sex. But with erotic romance, People do like their happily ever afters. We have enough painful bullshit in reality. So, you know, it's like I get really irritated by those that kind of thumb their nose at romance and at erotica and at erotic romance, you know. And I think romance in general has been kind of marginalized because, you know, oh, well, we know what's going to happen. You know, they're going to fall in love and be together forever, blah, blah. Like, you don't know what's going to happen in a mystery. Like, it's not going to be solved. You know, I mean, come on. (laughs) It's just uh, misogyny, if you ask me, because it's considered something women write, and therefore it's of less value. And I totally do not go for that, and I laugh all the way to the bank. So, (laughs) 
whatever. You know, it's like, believe what you want, but uh, here's my paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I often wonder about where that line is because... I can't write a story without the main characters being happy afterwards. I mean, one of my phrases I use most often was, and they were happy. So I often wondered, am I writing erotic romance? If there's an ATA, a happily ever after, then I would have to say it's erotic romance, yeah. And I think American men Mm -hmm. need to get out of their heads is that there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting what everybody really, truly wants at the end of the day, and that's to find your other half. So, you know, I mean, there's so much negative going on. The Middle East, the homeland security, the which politician can you fucking believe to vote for? I mean, there's just so much in our everyday life that we're bombarded with that is negative and ugly. And I think that what romance and erotic romance provides is you know, a happily ever after, an escape from all that, at least for a little while, till the book's done. (laughs) And you start the next. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What has been the biggest risk that you've taken as a writer or a publisher? Wow, that's hard. Honestly, I, I am such a risk taker that I don't even think of it as big or small. I think if you're afraid to take a risk and you're afraid to push yourself, then your writing's not going to get better. Your company's not going to get better. I think one of the great things about Alora's Cave is that we will look at stuff that the big six or the big five now, I guess, wouldn't. You know what I mean? Like, oh, no. Because basically, okay, I've written for New York, and here is what New York wants. Mm. They say they want original and all this. But what they want is a new spin on what they know sells. My very first book that I wrote for New York, and I'll be honest, I just did it because they were stealing all of our authors, and I figured, well, might as well get some publicity back the other way. So, you know, (laughs) it was like, okay, I'll write for them, and then I will, you know, have a book release through them, and that'll bring more attention to Allura's Cave and blah, blah. So the very first book I ever wrote for a New York publisher, they told me, I want you to write a contemporary romance with 2.5 sex scenes and a slight paranormal element. And I remember thinking to myself, and would you like a side of fucking prize? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, really? I mean, talk about killing creativity. I mean, a writer should be free, you know, like no boundaries is how I feel because that's where you get your best stuff, your best work. Telling somebody, I mean, that is just way too much. That's too cookie cutter. But apparently some men in suits somewhere have analyzed it that if it has a slight paranormal element and 2.5, and I was like, well, what is 0.5? And she says, well, I guess that would be oral sex. And I said, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> of course, I would consider oral sex a full scene if you, like, you know, make the whole thing happen from beginning to culmination. Right. How long do they want it to be? Anywhere from, like, 65K to 80K is about the norm. Wow, only 2.5 sex scenes in a yeah. that's 80K? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. And I got exactly the kind of reviews I was expecting afterward, too. Bad. What happened to Jade Black? Blah, 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 blah. You know, luckily over time, people have gone Reddit 
and aren't mad at me anymore and they're like, okay, you know, I actually do like this story. Uh, you know, so the reviews on it have gone up a lot in reading over the years, but at first, oh man, they're mad. She's a sellout. What, you know? <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, no, I'm just trying to bring more publicity to the company. <laughs> what are you most proud of in your writing publishing career? For my writing, I would have to say I was the proudest of a little novella I wrote called Seeds of Yesterday, and mainly just because it was a very almost autobiographic kind of book without using my name. (laughs) So it like helped me exercise a lot of old ghosts and demons, I guess you could say. As a publisher, I'd have to say my proudest moment was when our first book by Lauren Doner hit the New York Times and USA Today bestseller list. And it was just a matter of figuring out how to do it because we knew she had the sales. We knew that she was making way more than any of these people on the New York Times list. But it's like nobody wants to tell you how to do it because they don't want the competition. So my mom is just a phenomenal businesswoman and she watched and watched and watched and figured out how to do it. And bam, there we were. And her last three books have been on the New York Times and USA Today bestseller list, despite the fact that Fifty Shades of Grey has dominated the top four spots for, I can't even remember how long, <laughs> 10 weeks, 11. It's been a long time. It has been. Um, yeah. So that is not very fun to compete against, I could honestly say, because since it's a trilogy, it's taking up three spaces automatically. Right. And then Knopf has a combined one where they have all three of the stories together so that's taking up the fourth spot (laughs) yeah but that was you would have thought i wrote the book i cried and cried and cried but you know it was like there's publisher me and there's writer me and writer me you know it's like yeah of course i'd love to hit the list and everything but honestly i don't write enough to where i expect to get that kind of stamina i guess you could say that's required for it. I mean, every once in a while, you'll see a fluke book that came out of nowhere hit when there's been no stamina, but usually it's part of a series if you really analyze it, if you really analyze the list. You know, a part of me would like to hit it, but from a professional publisher, company owner standpoint, I'm just thrilled that we created a bestseller. I mean, it's not that we haven't had other bestsellers, but this is one we created. She's never published anywhere else, so nobody can say, oh, she was just writing off of her New York glory. That's how she was able to do it. It was, no, we created her from, you know, the ground up. Right. So, and she's one of my best friends, just a lovely woman. She's not a diva. She didn't step on anybody to make her career and make her name. She's just a, a lovely person. And that's also quite a rarity in this business. So, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question, what is the process with Allure's Cave and new authors? Basically, you submit, and if we like it, we pick you out. <laughs> <laughs> it's real easy. We use agents, and we also take unsolicited manuscripts. So, you know, we're used to working with everything, whether you have an agent, whether you don't. I'll give you my honest-to-God feeling on agents, okay? Sure. For ebooks, not really worth it. All you're basically doing is handing over 15% of your income. (laughs) (laughs) But we're family-owned. We're honest people. So can't really speak for the other e-publishing companies out there. 
from my company, it's like if you have a major problem with something that's in your contract, then talk to us about it. We'll talk it out. We'll work it out. If there's something that you just can't deal with, then I would say 99% of the time we always come to a resolution. There's always that occasional one that just digs their heels in and, and wants more than what's reasonable in the industry for being an unknown entity. But I think the secret to our success not only is always being on the cutting edge of what's new, but the way that we treat our authors. You know, I mean, it's like more like a family than a business. We actively care about their careers. We care about them earning good incomes. We care. I guess you can say. But honestly, I think using an agent with us is kind of, I don't know. To me, I feel like it's just throwing 15% of your income away. I mean, you always have the right, like with any publishing company, to audit us. So really, what are they doing for you? Right. We don't do advances. So that's really the only benefit of an agent, in my opinion. I have an agent, but that was for working with New York, which I don't do anymore. But I still have a really great relationship with him. I love him. He's a great agent. If you're looking for one, Ethan Ellenberg, Fifth Avenue, look him up. He's awesome. But for Alora's Cave, I just don't see the, the point because an agent really is for advances. What would make a person's book more likely to be accepted by Alora's Cave? Strong opening, really strong opening. I think you need to start fast-paced and establish a conflict. You need to just grab the attention. Don't start off with a bunch of sex because I honestly think it is hotter to lead up to it. The lead up, what Michelangelo called terribilita. It was the moment before the moment. If you look at his sculpture, David, the muscles clenched, ready to fling the uh, stone at Goliath. But it's the moment before the moment, you know what I mean? So we'll get a lot of submissions where they're masturbating on page one, and it's like, okay, why? <laughs> <laughs> if she was just ironing two seconds ago, why is she now masturbating? <laughs> you know, we want more character development than that. So give us some conflict, give us the plot, because we still want a plot. It should still be a good book, even, well... You can't always say even without the sex because, you know, a lot of times I build a book by sexual fantasy will come into my head and I'll build an entire story around it. But if it's not going to be something that is an intense plot, like some kind of mystery and blah, blah, then it should at least be an intense conflict. And it doesn't mean it has to be a conflict that is going to irritate people, but a conflict of uh, this person was raised... I don't know, like one of the ones that people find really hot that I wrote is called Subjugated, and it's American woman, Muslim man. Very politically incorrect because of the current situation, right. but it kind of preys on the fears that American women have, but then it turns very hot and sexy, and obviously he's not a bad guy or he wouldn't be a hero, so it all turns out good in the end, but you know, you kind of establish the conflict from page one, and I would say your first chapter is everything. So start fast, and then chapter two, start building your characters. But show the conflict or why I should be reading this in chapter one. How long do you expect the books to be? Uh, we publish everything from quickies, is what we call them, um, which is short stories to plus-length novels of, you know, like 100K or what have you. So we run the whole gamut, and there's really nothing we don't do. We have male-male, interracial, Rubenesque, the paranormal, sci-fi, fantasy. I mean, you know, everything, so. And what's the most successful one at Allure's Cave? Which genre? 
probably go back to the original vampire, BDSM, and capture fantasies. Those seem to be the most popular. Well, it doesn't have to be vampire. It could also be werewolfish or, you know, something of that nature. Sure. I think the vampire, though, that kind of whole immortality thing, that's another lure because it's something that, you know, humans grapple with and are frightened of what comes next because none of us really know. I mean, you can think you know all day long according to whatever religion you follow, but at the end of the day, you don't really know. (laughs) (laughs) But you get here, you you understand here, and, and I think that whole immortality and eternal beauty and youth, it's a nice escapism. So cost you sucking a little blood, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Mosquitoes do it all the time. <laughs> what is the wildest sexual scenario do you think that you've created in your books? Oh, man. Well, honestly, I don't really go for... I mean, I I don't think I would be one known for, oh, my God, you should have read this because it was just crazy how these two people, you know, the one was upside down and the other. I write very emotion-charged sex. So it's like I said, I'm big on conflict. And then especially during the consummation, which I extend for as long as I possibly can. And, you know, when that finally comes, it needs to be really emotionally charged. And my readers seem to find that really hot. So I wouldn't say, you know, that, you know, I mean, I've done anal and I've done vaginal and I've done oral and, you know, everything basically but nostrils and ears, I guess you could say. (laughs) But (laughs) I don't think that's possible. Uh, And I would hope not. You know, I mean, I've done all kinds of positions and everything, but that's just not what I'm known for. I'm known for that really emotionally charged sex. What do you think is the best sex scene that you've written, you personally think? I would have to say, oh, man, that's hard. (laughs) (laughs) That is an impossible question to answer, I think, because personally, I think all of it is written of Let It Be Published. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one plus to owning your own company is, uh, okay, I don't like this. Or two years later, if you decide that you don't like the cover anymore, okay, well, time to get a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know with me, no matter what I write, there is one scene I wrote where a woman goes to the building where she grew up. She obviously has some sort of issue with this place, and she goes and paints this one apartment completely white. She puts a red chair in it. She gets naked and allows her long red hair to flow as she sets the building on fire and waits for her fireman lover to come and rescue her. Mm. And with the flames beating at the door and the heat and, you know, the firemen rushing in, that to me is the most sexual scene I've ever written. Even though I've written a few stories by now, that is the most sexual. So there's always one that kind of stands out in your mind and goes, you know what, there's something special about that. Yeah, it sounds like it's emotionally charged sex. So that's what I go for, too. But what's yours? <sighs> I think Sins of the Father is a story I wrote. And I think that is probably the one that made me feel like constantly turned on when I wrote it. And another one was Tremors. I would say those two. In Tremors, it was more of a gothic, dark kind of feel and of a very lonely man and a very beautiful woman 
kind of trapped together in extreme circumstances and he's been an outsider all of his life and is very lonely and she gets, you know, naked in front of him and he gets really surprised and she gets down on her knees and starts taking it out and she looks up into his eyes and she says, you are worthy. And then she starts performing on him. And I think that was the most emotional and sensual and sexual scene that I've ever written that I could cry and come all at the same time, you know <laughs> what I mean? So I think that was probably mine. Nice. What is the next big thing for Laura's Cave? I can't really say. I can say it involves TV. That's all I can say at this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, I've been working on this for years, so I think it's going to be good. I think I think people are going to like what we come up with, but can't say anything more. Actually, this is the first time I've even admitted that. So. <laughs> <laughs> But you got that much out of me. Oh, great. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> I have to say you're a good interviewer. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> do you do audiobooks? Uh, not so much right now. We had started, but the feedback we were getting from our customers, they weren't really happy with it. They felt like the voices didn't match the impressions that they'd had in their head. So, no, it's not really a big thing that we do right now. Although, obviously, at some point we're going to just because we do want to be able to extend what we do to the blind community and people that have difficulty reading for whatever reason, that sort of thing. So, I mean, it it is something that we intend to get into more down the road when the right company presents itself to us, I guess you could say. Right. Well, my listeners will be able to tell you that I'm a big advocate of audiobooks. I love them, and the reason why I love them so much is because, although I'm a writer, I grew up slightly dyslexic, so I really did not like reading. However, audiobooks are storytelling without all the horrible brain activity going on. I totally agree, and I totally agree that they're necessary and that they're a wonderful outlet. I would just say we haven't yet found the right match for us in terms of companies that have approached us wanting to work with us. We haven't found the right match yet. If somebody listening thinks they are the match, well, we'll be at BEA June 5th through 7th, so come see us. Uh, Book Expo America, New York City, Jacob Javits Center. I think you might have a lot of people take you up on that. That would be wonderful. If we can find the the right match and keep our current customers happy while expanding to new ones, that would be awesome. We're always looking for new opportunities to further our brand. And I really encourage everyone to really explore audiobooks. I have, I guess I have like 14 at this point. And I've just taken the first steps to enter the German audiobook market. Oh, wow. So so I should have my first German audiobook out. I'm going to cross my fingers and say within the next two and a half weeks. No, it actually takes 10 days after that. So let's say the next month, I should have my first German audiobook out. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if anyone listening, if they own a company such as that and you want to talk business, if you can't be at BEA, then send an email to our chief executive officer, which is my mother, Patty Marks, P-A-T-T-Y, Marks, 
and it's p-a-t-t-y at allurescave.com. But that would be, I ask, please only vendors, companies like that to contact her. That would not be the person to contact for submitting work. She has absolutely nothing to do with that. So <laughs> <laughs> that would be the editorial department. <laughs> but all of the links for that are up on our website. And actually keep checking out our website because we have a brand new one coming up. Or I think by the end of August, we'll have it fully implemented. A new website? Yeah, it's going to be really cool, and that's the first time I've admitted that. (laughs) Boy, you just really relax a person to the point where they probably say way too damn much. (laughs) We should send you over to, uh, you know, Taliban. and (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, I think one other thing that you're going to do, I guess, that you don't do very often is you are going to give us a reading of one of your books. Yes. Mm-hmm. And which book will we be reading from? I figured I would let you do it, <laughs> I hope, because I can't do it, and it's from a man's perspective, but it's actually the prologue to um, my latest one, Fat Man and Robin. So I was hoping that, that I could get a man to read for me. Oh, wow. I am honored. I would love to do that for you. Okay, awesome. <laughs> The prologue sets up the contemporary romantic erotic comedy. There you go. Actually, I'd have to say, though, it's not my most sexual book or even close to it, but I still think it's funny. (laughs) I actually started out writing comedy first. All the three are are comedy books, so it's actually my love. And when I, I do editing and I do directing and stuff like that, and my specialty in editing is comedy. I love writing comedy. I mean, I could do it with or without sex. I don't really care. So I'm with you on that one. Does erotic comedy sell? Mm-hmm. As well as yeah. like the BDSMs and stuff like that? We don't really have an erotic comedy genre, per mm-hmm. se, uh, or line, I mean. So it's kind of hard to tell in the website statistics. But I think we definitely need one. So... Well, it's actually good we talk this out because when we get off the phone, I'm going to call the publisher and I'm going to say, okay, guess what? We need a new line. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think sometimes people just want to laugh, right. but they still want some sex in there, but they, you know, they want to laugh. Uh, when you go to where the podcast lives on my website, Sounds Erotic Podcast, I wanted to bring people to the site, uh, so I created a personality test that people can take, which will tell you what type of erotica reader you are. Oh, okay. And I had my friend take it as one of the test subjects for it. I mean, she's clearly really into comedy, and she said, you know, she would want erotica with comedy, and and she was the first person I ever heard say that. I figured that either people want to laugh or they want to have an orgasm. Nah, I would say the best books are the ones that make you do it all, laugh, cry, and reach for your vibe. <laughs> right. But I imagine they would have to be longer though, right? Because can you put humor so close to a sexual situation and have the sexual situation not suffer? I think definitely not. Yeah, you have to have the comedy removed from the sexual situation. So it's not that there's funny, quirky sex or anything. The sex is still very emotional, but it's just sort of everything leading up to it. It's just kind of a, you know, a little quirky comedy kind of thing. Hmm. or just humorous situations. It doesn't even have to be laugh-out-loud funny. You know, I quit reading reviews of my work 
many moons ago because it's like either you're going to love me or you're going to hate me. But that's basically it. People either love me or hate me. I get very few mediocre reviews. It's either love it, love it, love it, or can't stand this author. Right. Right. Um, but I would say in my last novella before this one, because I sent you Something Wicked, This Way Comes, Volume 2, I think Something Wicked, This Way Comes, Volume 1, my story, The Addiction, I did manage all that according to USA Today and the other places that reviewed it. I got a really positive review. They're like, she made me laugh, she made me cry, she made me hot. So I would say The Addiction, that's a very short story that manages all three at one time. Hmm. Do I have permission to include that little tiny section about comedy and erotica in the interview? Oh, sure, well? sure. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Because I, I think it's interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I do think people love it. It's actually, on my personal author website, I was like, you know, I really think I need to segregate these. So I have them listed under LOL on my personal, you know, jadeblack.com site as my short contemporary erotic comedies, you know, for people that want a nice laugh, want a, you know, a good hearty romance and some hot sex, but they don't have a lot of time. So, and I think novellas are really gaining strength with the advent of the Kindle and the Nook because a lot of people just don't have time to get into the huge long novels anymore. There's books I've wanted to read and I just didn't because it looked like, oh my God, too much time involvement there <laughs> and I don't have the time. Right. Like I really wanted to read the Outlander series by Diana Cabaldon, but they look like encyclopedias and I was like, oh my God, you know, I just, I don't have time. Right. So I think novellas are really catching on. I mean, you're even seeing them hit the lists now. So I actually maybe might start hitting the list now because I tend to be a novella writer. I really like writing smaller stories because I don't like filler. I don't like dragging things out just to drag them out. I feel like when I'm done telling my story, it should be done. I don't, you know, I don't want to bore anyone by creating all this other stuff that just has nothing to do with the story that's in my head. So right. I think it's definitely the rise of the novella writer coming. Right. <laughs> well, I would like to thank you so much, Tina for joining this interview today. It was fascinating. I learned a lot from your experience. And I know my listeners really enjoyed hearing from you. Oh, I really enjoyed being on here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was um, one of the funnest interviews I've ever done, I can actually say. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. You beat the hell out of Fox. <laughs> <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, and you have a wonderful day. Thanks again for having me. And listeners, here's an excerpt from Jade Black's book, Fat Man and Robin. Fat Man and Robin by Jade Black. The Prologue. Fetishes of any sort are a direct result of an Oedipus complex, the doctor sniffed. Was your mother fat? No. Aha! Then your mother was thin, and you subconsciously reject the innate attraction to her by fantasizing about plus-size women. Jake Chamberlain rolled his eyes and sighed. Fully reclined on Dr. Jordan's couch, he wasn't sure if the Freudian psychiatrist could see his frustration or not. My mother wasn't thin either, Jake growled, running a hand over the line of his jaw. 
she was average. Dead ass average. And your rejection of average has resulted in your current fascination with chubby women. It's blatantly obvious. Blatantly obvious. Yes, a blind man could see it. I can't believe I'm paying this fucking moron $300 an hour. I see, Jake drawled. The pompous doctor had an answer for everything. He reminded Jake of those TV psychics who changed their interpretation of the events based on the answers their audience members gave. The shrink had missed his calling. He should have been on some obscure cable channel wearing a swami turban and looking into a crystal ball as he dispensed advice from the nether regions of time and space. Lord knows he would have been more effective. Closing his eyes, he tuned out Dr. Snake Oil Salesman and took a deep breath. The only blatantly obvious thing happening in this room was a realization that this psychoanalyst wouldn't be any more help to Jake than had the other five shrinks who had preceded him. Six psychiatrists, two faith healers, and a weird back-alley voodoo priestess later, fucking a stick-thin model was no more appealing now than it had ever been. Jake needed to get over this unnatural attraction to what society called chubby chicks, and he needed to do it quickly. The star quarterback of the New York blood should have a trophy wife, a young, blonde, stick-thin Barbie doll with fake tits and a spray-on tan. That's what all men in his position coveted, and he should be no exception to the rule. He didn't like being different. He wanted to be the man society expected him to be. Because your mother's average weight was so arousing, you subconsciously began fantasizing about... Jake sat up, frowning. He didn't have time for this bullshit. The Bloods had their work cut out for them. One more win and they'd be Super Bowl bound. At age 37, he knew this was his last shot at the ring. He should have retired two years ago after sustaining his third knee injury. But Jake had wanted to retire a winner. He'd deal with his problems after he got that ring on his finger. And he thought with a grunt, after he could find somebody that could actually help him. This is stupid, Jake snapped, standing up. At six foot five inches and weighing in the vicinity of 260 pounds, he knew he was an intimidating figure to most people. He supposed by the wary look on Dr. Quack's face that the shrink was no exception. He didn't care. The fucker had wasted enough of his time. I don't want to fuck my mother. Not consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously. I'll have nightmare tonight just from the suggestion. Using your own logic? I think you are the one that wants to fuck his mother. That's all you can think about. Well, of course I do, on a subconscious level, Dr. Jordan whined. All men do. Jake grimaced. He would need counseling to get over this counseling. His brown eyes narrowed. Thank God I'm not like all men. He picked up his leather coat and shrugged into it. Get some help, dude, he advised as he stalked towards the door. Seriously. I would once again like to thank Tina Engler Keen, also known as Jade Black, for joining me today. For all Jade Black titles, as well as all Romantica titles, go to AlorasCave.com. Finally, would you like to know what type of erotica reader you are? As a special treat for our listeners, we at Sounds Erotic have created a free erotica personality quiz that will help you figure out what type of erotica reader you are. Go to soundseroticpodcast.com, take the quiz, and get books based on your exact erotica personality type. It's fun and kind of hot. 
Thank you again for joining me, Alex Anders, and please join me next time on Sounds Erotic. <laughs>